Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, the things present or things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word that it informs us, it gives us, it sheds light upon reality And it is in your word that we understand truth. Father, we pray that as we study these things this morning, that you would challenge us with the uh, universal, eternal principles that are embedded in the text, and that we might learn to think and live as you would have us to think and live. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we come to the next chapter in our study of, of 2 Kings. But as I pointed out four or five lessons back, chapter 20 does not take place chronologically after chapter 19. It actually takes place before uh, chapter uh, 19, and yet the writer has placed it uh, in this place because he is writing from a different vantage point than what we normally think of as history. This is historical but it is not, Hebrew literature does not follow uh, a historical pattern in the same way that, that we do. It is focusing on presenting the events from a, as it were, a theological, theologically editorialized view of history. And so he's writing from a different vantage point. Now, as we look at the event that I'm focusing on this morning, the first 11 chapters, the focus is on, once again on a prayer of Hezekiah. And once again, we see an example of the principle stated at the end of James 4.2 that prayer changes things. James says, you have not because you ask not. And often we get caught in our thinking between two polarities, two opposites that are characteristic of pagan thought. One is the view of that prayer is not really that important because God is going to do everything according to his will. And so why really pray? Pray doesn't, Prayer doesn't have any effect except maybe a personal psychological impact, that the only reason we pray is because it does something to us internally, but it doesn't really change anything. Well, James, in just that one nutshell of a sentence, shows that that's not true. But the examples that we have here, especially, along with a number of others from the Old Testament and a few from the New Testament, is that prayer changes history. It is because Hezekiah prayed 
to God in the 19th chapter. God says, because you prayed to me, I will answer you. And God gave them a victory over the Assyrians. And God uh, sent the angel of death to the angel of the Lord to uh, destroy the army of Assyria that was surrounding Jerusalem, and 185,000 Assyrians were killed uh, that night, so that when everyone awoke the next morning within Jerusalem, they discovered that they were no longer under siege, and that broke the back of the Assyrian attack on the kingdom of Judah. Prayer changes things. In this chapter, we see that prayer is also going to change things. It changes things personally, for Hezekiah, and as a result of his prayer, his life is going to be extended another 15 years. And God answers his prayer. Also, there is a miraculous sign given to confirm that answer uh, to Hezekiah. So again, we see the principle uh, restated that prayer does change things. So we can't fall prey to the pagan idea of a fatalism that somehow God is just going to do what God is going to do. So why take the time uh, to pray? Why put effort into prayer? And so many people do that, and it minimizes prayer. On the other hand, we have within our culture the evolutionary Darwinistic worldview that is grounded upon uh, pure random chance. Everything is that happens is pure chance. It is uh, chance that governs and rules the, the universe. There's really no basis for arguing for any kind of uh, unchanging or immutable natural laws because uh, everything is really in a state of flux. That's the whole issue in evolution. And these polarities between uh, something that is uh, unchangeable and that which is always changing are the two polarities that are we find present throughout ancient Greek philosophy as well, and the whole tension between uh, being on the one hand, which is related to fatalism, and becoming on the other hand. If you're familiar with Greek philosophy, you know that's a, that's a major theme and major tension. Biblically, this conundrum, which is also manifested in things such as the debate between free will and determinism and things like that, This debate is resolved within an understanding that the God, the ultimate reality uh, who rules the universe, the God of the Bible, is a Trinitarian unity. So that in unity we have oneness, and in the Trinity we have plurality. But both are equally true and are eternally present within the Godhead in in a unique way so that that answers and resolves these problems, but not in a way that we fully understand because the unity of God and the plurality of God is being equally true uh, without one dominating the other is beyond our ability to fully comprehend and to fully understand. And we tend to want to always talk about this in terms of causation, and to and that relates to prayer. How can I really pray where God's going to change things? And how does God change things? Because that indicates that he causes certain things to happen. How does God do that without violating individual responsibility or individual free will? And so we get into this whole conundrum related to this, this terminology of causation. 
And where we, where we make the ultimate mistake is we think that the causation we're familiar with at a horizontal plane within creation is identical to causation at the, at the divine creator level. Now that's a really heavy concept for uh, a Sunday morning after everybody has exerted themselves out uh, yesterday at the picnic, but it's fundamental. Uh, causation. We pray to God, would you cause this to happen? And we expect God to act in that way. Unless, of course, you're a fatalist and you don't think God can, you don't think your prayer really changes things, but God just always causes to happen what, what will happen. Or if you go the other extreme, everything is pure random chance. God's not causing anything. It's just all caused by whatever things happen at the creaturely level. But Scripture teaches that both are equally true within the Godhead. And the answer is that causation at a creature, creator level, causation at the creator's level, is not identical to causation at the creaturely level. And so there's ultimately no conflict. It's just that we can't fully comprehend how God superintends history without violating human responsibility and human interaction. Therefore, the reality is that that God is the one who oversees and superintends history, and that history includes the history of your life and my life as micro-sections of history, so that God has a general plan and direction for our life, but that within that plan there are certain variables that may or may not be enacted on the basis of our decisions, whether we decide at such and such a place to obey God, in which case, and in prayer, God changes circumstances and changes things, or we disobey God and God brings into action certain areas of divine discipline that in turn changes things. But those are based upon those variables. So we see this enacted in this episode with Hezekiah. Hezekiah, we began in verse 1, reading the statement, in those days. Now, that phrase, in those days, anchors us to the events of the Assyrian conquest, so that the events of chapter chapter 20 take place within the framework of the Assyrian assault and invasion of the southern kingdom. This occurred, as I say, at least the defeat of, of uh, of uh, Sennacherib takes place in 701 B.C. So these events take place very close to that time period. In those days, we're told Hezekiah was sick and near death. Now, that doesn't fit anything that we have read so far in chapter 19. We don't see a sick Hezekiah who is on his deathbed. Now, his physical sickness has a spiritual cause. But the only way Hezekiah knows that is because Isaiah the prophet comes and reveals that to him. That means that you have no basis for going home and uh, next week, next year, or next decade when you become uh, fatally ill with cancer or leukemia or some other malady, you can't interpret that as divine blessing or divine judgment, because there is no special revelation today to tell you that. We can't look at something negative in our life and say, oh, that's divine discipline. 
or that or something good and say that's special divine blessing because the only way people in the scripture knew that was when a prophet told them or there's direct revelation to give them the basis to interpret that. Now, if you're going through difficult times, any of us are going through hard times or suffering, we can evaluate our lives and see if we are out of fellowship or not, see if we've been disobedient or not, and if we have been disobedient, uh, one uh, cause of that of the suffering in our life might be divine discipline, or it might not. So we just have to evaluate that and, and make sure that we are walking with the Lord and in fellowship. But Hezekiah is sick and near death, but he only knows the spiritual cause of it when Isaiah comes to him. And we're told in the next phrase in verse 1, And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord. Now, how many times have we read that phrase in the last couple of chapters? And again, we see that what the Bible presents is that this isn't something that Isaiah generated from within his own soul, some uh, existential experience that he had with God, but that he is claiming that the eternal God, the creator God of the universe, has spoken objectively to him to communicate something to Hezekiah. The principle that we see throughout the Old Testament on this is that whenever God does something in private, he will always authenticate it in public. Whenever God does something in private, he will always authenticate it in public. That's why in in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and chapter 18, there there are tests to evaluate the claim that God has spoken to me. We can't just run around like some people do and say, well, God spoke to me in a dream last night, or God told me this, or God told me that. Uh, the, scripture do not, the Scriptures do not allow us to talk that way and to make those claims unless we can validate it objectively through these tests that are given within the Scripture. The only way we can say God spoke to me is if I say God spoke to me, and then what comes next is a verse of Scripture. And that is the only objective revelation that there is today. And so the Bible claims to not be the word of man about God, but the word of God directed to man. And it always has qualifying evidence that shows that this indeed took place. And we'll see that evidence given in this particular chapter. So the Lord sends a message through Isaiah to Hezekiah and says, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Now, in some sense, there's an application there for all of us that we ought to have our household affairs in order, wills, living wills, insurance, documentation of everything, because there is going to be a time when we are absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. And at that moment, we need to make sure that everything is ready for those who are left behind so that they can take care of all of the legal issues uh, related to our death. And that is what's happening, what God is telling uh, Hezekiah here, but he gives him a little warning. This is very unusual and is a unique situation among the uh, kings in the in the Old Testament. Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. What is Hezekiah's response? 
Does he respond like the fatalist and say, oh, well, God has already said I'm going to die, so I'm just going to roll over here in bed and, um, and die, or I'm going to do what God says to do, and I'm going to make sure I've got all of my uh, legal affairs in order, and then I'll die when the Lord's timing comes. On the other hand, he doesn't act as if everything is in the universe is run by uh, pure chance and randomness and say, well, maybe it'll happen and maybe it won't. Uh, what God says really doesn't matter. This was just, Isaiah just ate something that didn't agree with him last night and he had a bad dream and now he's coming and telling me that I'm going to die. Because uh, we'll see what he has is not something that would necessarily be a fatal illness. He has a uh, a boil, and normally skin problems of that nature are not necessarily fatal, although God has told him that in his case, this is going to be fatal. But what Hezekiah does is neither just give up in terms of some sort of fatalistic response or just act as if everything's random. He doesn't think within pagan worldview concepts. He turns to the wall and he prays to the Lord, and he is going to, uh, in effect, confess his sins. And he calls upon God, remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth. So now we see this theme of memory. He calls upon God to remember Hezekiah's faithfulness uh, in the past as he has led the nation in terms of obedience to God. And so he entreats the Lord uh, to remember his past, how he walked before him in truth and with a loyal heart. So this tells us, first of all, that Hezekiah understood that his lifestyle in the past was different from what it had become and that he had previously walked in truth. This indicates an external absolute framework that is absolutely true at all times for all people. It is not a relative truth, what was true for Hezekiah, or what was true for Isaiah, but it was true for everyone. That's what the Bible claims. And if the Bible is wrong, then it's a book of lies. You don't have, God really doesn't leave us with options. There are a lot of people who say, well, you know, Jesus was a good man. No, he wasn't. If he wasn't who he claimed to be, then he wasn't a good man, and you can't say that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. So he's either telling the truth or he's telling a lie. If he's telling a lie, it is such an egregious lie that has deceived millions down through the centuries that he is one of the most evil people that have ever existed. If he is not one of the most evil people that ever existed, and his life does not demonstrate that, then what he said must be true. If it is true, then he is the unique person of the universe who came to earth to provide the one and only path of direct access to God, which is on the basis of his work, his sacrifice on the cross. So the first thing Hezekiah emphasizes in his prayer is that his previous life of obedience to God, he walked on the basis of truth, meaning on the basis of the Torah, on the basis of the instruction of God, that's the basic root meaning of Torah, is not law, it is instruction. He has lived his life on the basis of Torah with a loyal heart. He was faithful. And uh, he said, he has done what was good in your sight, and Hezekiah wept bitterly. 
The weeping is a sign of his remorse and the fact that he is turning back to God after a period of disobedience to God. This implies that he also admitted his sin to God, confessed his sin. We're just giving a brief summary of the prayer. We're not giving given everything that he said, everything he communicated to God, but he obviously is turning back to God at this particular time, and so that the punishment of death that God had announced to him, which is what we refer to as the sin unto death, which can occur in many different ways with different believers at different times in history, is going to be rescinded. And so, and it's rescinded rapidly. Verse 4, see, when we pray, God, sometimes God changes things in a slow manner. Sometimes God changes things instantly. And this happened so fast that Isaiah hadn't even had time to get out to the front of the uh, palace yet. It happened, uh, verse 4, that before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court, that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, once again, this claim, I'm an objective revelation to Isaiah. And, and God orders Isaiah to return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, notice the emphasis again, that it, the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are God's people. They are a distinct nation in all of history. And God has a new message for Hezekiah, and he said, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. Now, why is the Lord saying that? Why didn't he say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses? He says the God of David because Hezekiah is a direct descendant of David. And God entered into a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7 where God had promised David that a descendant of David would always sit on the throne of David on the throne of Jerusalem and rule God's people. And so this is a, a promise uh, or a, 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 the answer to prayer, and God is structuring this on the basis of a reminder of the Davidic covenant. Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, and here's the answer. I have heard your prayer. God listens to us. He responds. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says, wait a while, but he always answers prayer. God said, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. The tears are not what moves God. You may feel bad about sin. You may feel profound remorse about your failures in life, but that is not what moves God. What moves God is the recognition or admission of sin not the consequence of that emotionally. Now, there's nothing wrong with feeling remorse about sin. There's nothing wrong with uh, feeling uh, terribly sorry about the impact of that upon your relationship with God. There's nothing wrong with uh, coming to tears over your disobedience to God. But that's not what moves God. What moves God is simply the confession, the admission of guilt of sin, because there are, frankly, sins that we commit in life that are not that egregious and that are pretty common for each of us. We all know what our common everyday sins are. And maybe when we were 17 or 18 or 19 or 20 
and we were young and idealistic, and we were striving hard to be obedient to God. And every time we committed this particular sin, uh, we felt terrible about it. But now we're 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 years old, and we haven't just committed that sin a thousand times. We've committed it 20,000 times, and we just don't quite get as emotionally impacted by the fact that we failed once again. So we can't generate or regenerate those emotions over and over again. You would think listening to some people talk about this, that that is a requirement, but, but that's not realistic. We've become rather immune to that due to the frequency of our failure. But God in his grace continues to forgive us because we simply confess our sin, which is what the scriptures state. Homo legeo does not imply, the word for confess does not imply remorse, and it doesn't imply sorrow. It simply states that what we do in confession is to admit or acknowledge our guilt, our failure to God. This is what Hezekiah has done. And so the Lord says, I've heard your prayer, I've seen your tears, surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. And again we have this emphasis on three days that we see often in Scripture. And as of course we see it in the resurrection. Here it is on the third day you will go up to the house of the Lord. Now think about this. We we studied something similar with Uzziah who was um, Hezekiah's grandfather. Uzziah was struck, disobeyed God and was struck with leprosy. Because of the physical uh, disease, it made him ritually unclean, and he was never allowed to go into the temple again. But here the Lord tells Hezekiah on the third day, you will go up to the house of the Lord. There is the implication here that you will be cleansed physically of this skin disease so that now you will be qualified to go back into the temple. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days, God says, 15 years. I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. Well, wait a minute. Didn't we just read about his deliverance of the city from the hand of the Assyrian at the end of the 19th chapter? Yes, we did. That's why this is one reason we know that the events of chapter 20 preceded the events of chapter 19. In fact, it was necessary for God to discipline Hezekiah to get his attention back upon the Lord and on uh, serving the Lord before the Assyrian crisis reached its um, the intensity of the uh, of the uh, assault and and the siege on Jerusalem, so that Hezekiah would have his thinking back on uh, back on the promise of God, and so God promises to add to his days fifteen years, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. Now this also gives us a little chronology, a chronological point for. Uh, handling uh, the, the timing of this. Hezekiah dies in 686. Fifteen years earlier would be 701. And so this it would be earlier in the year before the, uh, the siege was broken. And this fits with what, we'll, what we know of coming up in the latter part of the chapter, 
because having heard of this disease that Hezekiah had, the king of, of uh, Babylon, Merodach Baladan, will come and uh, send uh, emissaries to uh, Jerusalem on his behalf. That comes up in the second part of the chapter. That also has to precede the events of the destruction of, of, um, of Jerusalem because Hezekiah still has to have some money and some wealth to show off uh, to the um, uh, Babylonians. So we see here that God is going to add 15 years. Now, this is something that is positive. There is uh, some have thought that uh, because of the time frame here, because his son, who's the most evil king in the northern kingdom, uh, Manasseh, Manasseh, is 12 years old when he became king, that he, Manasseh was born after this. But when you work through the chronology and chronological issues uh, related to this, and they're not easy, and uh, we're not absolutely certain, the toughest period of chronology to understand on the chronology of Judah is the, this latter part, but the numbers don't work, and most scholars in the area of chronology put the um, Manasseh beginning to reign as a co-regent with Hezekiah in about 95, or I mean uh, 695 or 696, and then uh, 10, so that the last 10 years of Hezekiah's reign is a co-regency uh, with Manasseh. So this is a positive thing that happens here because God wants to use Hezekiah as the king who will uh, pray the prayers of chapter 19 to bring about the deliverance of the nation from the Assyrian. So he adds 15 years to him and promises that he will deliver the city for his own sake, God says, and for the sake of my servant David. So once again, he is grounding the, um, the deliverance of the, the the city and the and Judah on the basis of the uh, Davidic covenant, and so Isaiah gives him now instruction. Now this is not what you should do if you have a boil or you have a skin disease or something like that. This is not a uh, pharmacological recipe for healing. This is a divine recipe which is going to sent, uh, indicate something. That is important. Isaiah says to him, take a lump of figs or a cake of figs. And so they took, took it and laid it on the boil and he recovered. Now there is not a healing property in a cake of figs. God is signifying something here that is important. First of all, we have to understand the problem with a boil. Boils were considered, were part of the um, plagues that came upon Egypt, as seen in Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 to 12. Boils, the, skin, the same skin disease, was seen as part of the plague on Egypt. And boils were among the curses that God promised that would come upon Israel for their disobedience to him. So Hezekiah, in this position as uh, on his sin unto death, also is a picture of the carnality and the uh, idolatry that is still present under the surface in um, in Judah. Even though God has blessed them and they've cleaned everything up externally, 
which we saw earlier in chapter 19, it is not an internal change in the life of the nation. When Manasseh becomes king, and Manasseh immediately rebuilds all of the uh, uh, idolatrous worship centers and everything else, the people just go right along with him uh, immediately. So it shows that the uh, reformation that has occurred under Hezekiah was a reformation that was, pardon the pun, only skin deep. So his boil represents divine discipline that God has also promised will come upon the nation. And this, these, and boils were seen as part of the divine judgment on Israel based on Deuteronomy 28, 27. But we're also reminded within the Torah, within the law, in Exodus 15, 6, that God had promised that if the Israelites were obedient to God, that he says, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. This is restated in Deuteronomy 7, verse 15, where God said that if they're obedient, he will afflict them with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt uh, which you have known. And so this is a reminder again that the nation is in uh, spiritual in a state of being spiritually backslidden and in spiritual rebellion against God, and that God is bringing this kind of a judgment on them, but there is a solution. Now, the solution that Isaiah brings is take a cake of figs, because what happens as a result of Hezekiah's turning back to God is God, first of all, delivers them from the Assyrian threat, Secondly, there is going to be a restoration and recovery of the economy, which we, which God uh, identified in uh, chapter 19, uh, verses 29 to 31. But we also see that that in the last part of Hezekiah's reign, the nation has tremendous prosperity. Like most nations and people who have prosperity, they fail the prosperity test. But God gives them tremendous prosperity that is indicated by the fact that there will be a great production of figs and vineyards. Their agriculture will be uh, uh, blessed and bring great prosperity uh, to the nation. So Isaiah gives this instruction to take a cake of figs and to put it on the boil, and the boil will be cured. But then Hezekiah asks for a sign. Now this is in contrast to his dear old dad, uh, 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 Ahaz, who refused to uh, respond to God's uh, request for him to ask for a sign. Remember in Isaiah 7:14, the context was that Ahaz was to ask for a sign, and Ahaz says, "No, I'm not going to blaspheme God by asking for a sign." Well, when God asks you to do something, uh, responding in obedience is not blasphemy, and of course the sign was the sign of the virgin, that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a child. And so one of the greatest messianic prophecies in the Old Testament is related to that. So Ahaz had refused to ask for a sign, but here Hezekiah asked for a sign and is not considered to be something presumptuous. Now, one of the reasons he's asking for a sign is he wants clarification that he's going to be healed and he says, I, what is the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day? He wants clarification and certainty that he will be cleansed uh, ritually and spiritually so that he can 
uh, re-enter the house of the Lord and worship the Lord there. So Isaiah says in verse 9, This is the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees or go backward uh, ten degrees? And Hezekiah said, It's an easy thing for the shadow to go down ten degrees. No, but let the shadow go backward ten degrees. Now what he's talking about is they had this circular staircase that had been built in the time of Ahaz, that was something like a sundial, so that as the sun uh, moved across the heavens and the shadows changed on the staircase, they could tell time. And as the shadows, as the sun moved, the shadows would uh, go down the staircase, which was the normal procedure. But what Hezekiah is asking is, you know, that's pretty normal to go down the staircase. I want the shadow to reverse itself and go back up. And that can only happen as a result of divine intervention. Now, there are many people who, when they read this, connect it to the events uh, when the Israelites are fighting the Gibeonites in Joshua chapter 10, when God allowed the sun or the light of the sun to extend the daytime period so that the Israelites would have time to completely defeat the Gibeonites. Both events happened as miracles. They are not something that happened uh, un- uh, universally or throughout the earth. We don't see God stopping the normal process of the uh, rotation of the earth upon its axis. This happens only in Israel. It doesn't happen throughout the earth. Another thing you'll see every now and then, this, this kind of stuff drives me nuts, Christians can be the most gullible idiots on the face of the earth. And I mean that every sense of the word. And I remember actually reading this in a newspaper or something when I was a teenager, and it still gets repeated, and with the Internet it just gets sent around all the time. I haven't seen it in a couple of years, but uh, you'll probably remember it. There's an email that goes around that claims that they have figured this out now by uh, NASA working on some... uh, time uh, chronology system has figured out that there's a missing day in history and that they that the answer to this is the time frame of of uh, the the sun being going backwards at uh, Joshua's time and then they usually link it to this in some way the the thing is that you can't figure out a missing day between point X and now unless you know for sure that point X occurred at a specific day and a specific time prior to the uh, event, the day that is missing. And we don't know that anything, we can't benchmark any day or date exactly prior to the time of, of Joshua. We can't say that, oh, yes, the initial first Passover on the 14th of Nisan occurred on a Thursday in such and such a year. We don't have any benchmarks like that. And so this is just uh, uh, just uh, silliness. And yet Christians read that and they go, oh, isn't this wonderful? This just supports the Scripture. But... <laughs> The scripture doesn't need that kind of supporting. Let's, let's have something that is, is solid. Uh, what happens is, is clear. This is a, a miracle that occurs in Jerusalem where God just causes the shadow to go back up. It doesn't mean that he caused the sun to back up. It doesn't mean he caused the earth to stop its rotation. It's an easy enough thing for God just to cause the shadow to, uh, to uh, reverse itself and to go backward 
uh, 10 degrees. We don't know how he did it, but we don't need to know how he did it because God is God and the uh, one who supervises creation, and so he can bring that about. And this is Hezekiah's uh, Hezekiah answers in verse 10. He says, it's an easy thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. No, but let the shadow go backward 10 degrees. So Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord, and he brought the shadow, that is God, brought the shadow 10 degrees backward uh, by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. And so this is the miraculous confirmation given in the presence of witnesses who hear about this and know about this, and we will see that word of this spread throughout the ancient world. There were witnesses. It is, it is verified. And as I pointed out earlier, God does nothing in private that he doesn't validate in public. And so once again, we have eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts of events that occurred. Now, just because this occurred uh, some seven, uh, 1,700 years ago, and you had eyewitnesses then doesn't mean that we have the right to come along and say, well, how do we really know they were right? I mean, uh, just because enough time goes by doesn't mean that uh, that uh, certain people who are convicted of crimes and who have definite evidence against them that suddenly now uh, they're going to be uh, they're going to be innocent rather than guilty, unless of course you come up with new evidence. But no matter how much time goes by. Uh, 2,000 years from now, John Wilkes Booth is still going to be the man who was guilty of shooting Abraham Lincoln. You know, evidence is evidence, and guilt is guilt, and when something happens, and according to the law of witnesses, no matter how much time passes by, the testimony still stands. And so there were eyewitnesses of this event that confirmed it as having actually happened, and so we can rely upon that as being validated, even though it's 1,700 years uh, years later. The point that we learn from this, once again, is that God answers prayer. He changes things. Prayer can change history. It doesn't mean that God's going to answer every prayer, or every time we bring a petition to him, God will change the circumstances. But we do know that if we don't ask, he won't answer or change things with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you that you are God who intervenes in history, that you are God who answers our prayer because you are the God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. You are the God who supervises history, and you are the God who is bringing about that which you said you would bring about as you declared the end from the beginning. Father, we pray this morning that if there's anyone here today that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross with you in mind. He paid the penalty for every sin in history so that sin is not the issue anymore. It has been taken care of by his death on the cross. The issue is what do you believe? Are you trusting in Christ alone for salvation? Are you trusting in works? Scripture says in the Old Testament that all our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. Therefore, there's nothing we can do. Uh, There's no ritual. There's no activity. There's no good works. There's nothing we can do to overcome that deficit. The only thing that can overcome the deficit is the work of God in providing a perfect substitute in Jesus Christ. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone.
Father, we pray that you would challenge us from what we studied today on the importance of prayer, that we might be more faithful in our prayer lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.